How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Happy New Year and welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. Uh, my name is Gabriel Hakoen. I'm here with Sadie Carpenter, the cult expert who is my BFF and also the person I host this show with. Hello, that's me. So happy to be here today. You're happy to be here today? Well, I'm happy to be here too uh, with you Um in the year 2023, except it isn't 2023 yet. It's 2022 when we're recording this. But for everybody out there listening, you're hearing this in 2023. And we're going to start the year off with a bang. This is probably our most requested episode that we've ever gotten. Would you, yeah. would you say, Sadie? Yeah, this is this is one that I think people are just, uh, oh, I don't want to say dying to hear because that's not very Ooh. respectful. No. People are extremely eager to hear. Yeah, I like um so today uh, we're going to talk about Jonestown. We're going to talk about Jim Jones and uh the People's Temple. Yeah, and we all know the end of that story, right? We all know that over 900 people died, many died by suicide and many others were dosed with poison against their will. Yeah, including children. Yeah, um, and like yeah, we all know yeah. this is 
bad. We all know the tragic end to this story, but today we're going to talk about uh, that tragic ending, but we're going to spend a lot more time on how this group was formed and how they got to that point in November of 1978. So before we get into that, the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about my BFF and co-host cult expert Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the her independent fundamental Baptist upbringing uh, that the cult that she was raised in. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. And it is our goal to promote freedom of mind freedom of thought and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you are a fan of our show and you want to support us, there's a number of things that you can do. Number one, easiest thing that you can do is you can just hit that subscribe button on our podcast. You can just, if you hit the subscribe button, then it'll automatically uh, download the episode when it comes out. And it'll also help the algorithm recommend our show to other people who might be listening to the same shows as you and who might who might like it. Um, and so that's one easy thing that you can do to to support the show. You can also join our Patreon. You'll get access to extended and uncensored and ad free versions of our podcast episodes. And uh, uh, you can see that at patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast. If you want to have general good fun discussion with other fans of the show and share your experiences, share your thoughts. Uh, you can go to our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. Uh, you can do the same thing in our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. Um, is there anything that you want to promote Sadie before we get into the episode? Yes, I have a couple things. So my husband's band, for those of you who are in Portland, uh, my husband's band red hoof is playing. Let me pull up the details at the Fixin' 2 on Lombard Street at 7.30 this Saturday night, January 7th. Lombard, we're doing a no-po show. That'll be good. Yeah. So if you are local to Portland, come on out and check them out. And uh, I'm going to do my best <laughs> to get there myself. It could be like a little mini meetup for <laughs> leaving, Eden, leaving Eden podcast fans who want to do concert things heathen sinful things if you're a bit of a metalhead you should definitely go to that show they sound kind of like they're, they're like black sabbath style or like motorhead style really mm -hmm. like classic metal just really there may or may ready. not be a motorhead cover at this show hell yeah uh, I also wanted to let you know about the Vashti Initiative is doing a spiritual abuse forum for Spiritual Abuse Awareness Month, which is in January. That forum is going to be on Sunday, January 15th. It's an online forum. And if you are going to buy tickets, if you'd like to buy tickets, you can get 50% off with code EDEN, E-D-E-N. We support everything that Vashti Initiative does, um, want them to succeed at everything they do. And if so if you'd like to attend their spiritual abuse forum, you can use code EDEN for 50% off tickets. We'll post the link to the Vashti Initiative event so that you'll be able to find it through our social media as well. Without further ado, I'm going to... Uh, uh, thank our faith promise missions and I gave it all to your patrons. Let's do it. Um, yeah, let's, let's do it. As always, we have two, I gave it all to your patrons, Melissa Mosley, 
Kathleen Moncrief, words can't say how thankful we are for you, but we are very thankful for you. Um, our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons are Alex Todd, Allison MacArthur, Anisha Patel, Brittany, Brooke Tolly, Krissa, Crystal Patterson, Dear Ethan Hansen the Musical, Eleanor Donahue, Elizabeth DeWorth, Emery Fairlosser, Hannah Ross, Hope Norum, Horton Hears a Shane. I'm just here to send Sadie True Crime Podcast Suggestions, aka Meg, Jen Kaharski, Jessica Tambo, Jonna, Jonathan Miller, Kay Turwee, Kristen Marie, Lauren Vanderwall, Linda Morgan, Lindsay Goss, Lorena Watson, MC Crunchwrap, hashtag the boy who cried sauce, aka Justin Bowman, Michaela Upright, Madeline Antrim, Madeline Cusick, Marlena Stuve, Mary Williams, Mary Martin, Megan Arendt, Miranda Day, Rebecca, Rob the Methodist, Sarah Reese. Oh, a new one, Scooby Sleuth. Welcome, welcome. Scooby Scooby Sleuth, where are you? We're out here deconstructing. Oh, hey, that's good. <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. Uh, Stephanie Johnson, Susie Horner, Tara McNamara, the lady rabbi, part of the clergy crew. Hell yeah, we got the clergy crew up in the hizzy. Tiffany Enderby, Walnut Son of Walnut, Wendy Dalton. Wendy Dalton is also a new one. Um, I'm trying to think if I can make a funny joke about Wendy Dalton, but you know what? I'll, I'll have a week to do it. And next time I'll probably have something funny about Wendy Dalton. And finally, we have Wes the Cowboy. Thank you so much to Wes the Cowboy and to all of our Faith Promise missions. And I gave it all to your patrons. Yeah. Sadie hit us with the TW. Uh, before I do that, speaking of Patreon, all of my sources for this episode are available on Patreon. It is a free post. So if you go to uh, our Patreon page, you will be able to see it whether or not you have an account with Patreon and whether or not you give us any money. So you will be able to see that post regardless so that you can track along with the story that we're telling today. In general, we talk about a lot of potentially triggering topics on this show, including but not limited to suicide, mental health, Racism, misogyny, PTSD, PTSD symptoms, child abuse, mental, physical, and sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, at least a few of those topics are going to come up, but we try to avoid graphic detail unless it's relevant to the story that we're telling, and we also do our best to give you a heads up before we mention anything that we would consider to be graphic detail. In this episode, of course, we are talking about many people who died by suicide, as well as many people who were coerced or forced to their deaths, and the death of many, many children. But I think that's obvious from the episode title and the topic we're discussing. You knew that before you clicked on this episode. We are also, however, going to be talking about some humiliation, rituals, control, brainwashing, and blackmail rituals that went a bit deeper than I initially was aware of when I started researching for this episode. We are going to avoid a lot of the details on those things. I have sources listed in my free source post that are tagged with a warning to let you know what you would be getting into if you decided to click on them. 
a lot of those details we're just going to err on the side of not giving them to you because we don't want to glorify abuse. And because, to be frank, some of the details that I found about this event are so disturbing that I would not feel right just springing them on you. Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is probably going to be up there with one of those David Hiles episodes for the most disturbing stuff that we've got on, on a podcast. I, You know, like, I don't want to scare our listeners unnecessarily because we're going to try to be even-handed and cautious with how we cover this. But I think this is the only episode I've ever actually lost sleep over. So is that part of the reason why you think it's taken us so long to actually talk about this topic? Because this is probably our most requested episode ever. And it's taken us two and a half years to actually do this episode. I don't think so, because I did. I had no idea how bad this was. Of course, I knew that a lot of people died in a very traumatic and tragic way. But I, most of the details that I turned up in the course of my research, I just had no clue how bad this was. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I had no idea until uh, we started actually writing the episode and you started like telling me about this stuff that you read in the research. Mm -hmm. And I'm, yeah. <sighs> yeah. Oh, okay. There, it turns out there was just a lot that I did not know about Jim Jones and the People's Temple in Jonestown. Well, this stuff was never really, that stuff was never widely publicized, I don't think. Like, well, that's the, the, the thing. It was. The, like the creepier details of it? Yes, think they were in newspaper, contemporary newspapers, but somebody's propaganda machine allowed them to be suppressed where people were not fully aware. Interesting. Okay, so... Sadie, so over the course of doing this podcast, we've talked mainly about cults that are mainly related to Christian fundamentalism, and most of those cults, be they um, IFB, IBLP, uh, what have you, usually they have ties to right-wing political movements, IBLP especially. Right. Last year, I think our first episode, uh, episode 22, about the Branch Davidians, that was a cult where that was literally the flashpoint for a lot of these, the, the far-right militia movement in the United mm -hmm. States. Um, this, uh, this week, we're talking about Jim Jones and the People's Temple in Jonestown, which is a Christian group. It's definitely a cult, and it shares a lot of commonalities with... Um, the Branch Davidians, but it also shares a lot of commonalities with groups that are more likely to be associated with New Age spirituality. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I was totally unaware of how progressive the People's Temple was until I started doing research. I'm sure that I had heard Jim Jones described as a communist at some point, um, which is not an unfair <laughs> label to put on him considering that he started an actual commune uh where people he calls lived. himself a, he literally would call himself a communist and yeah he was like, more likely to call himself a socialist but he used both terms i did not i would not have thought that he had any what we would call progressive beliefs and teachings uh he was a horrible abusive man who used absolutely abhorrent techniques to control people and get them to do horrible things and i don't want to gloss over that but you cannot ignore that he was also a huge anti-racist activist. And from what I can tell, he was pretty sincere about his, like, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a, just a way to make himself look good or a way to gain followers. He was truly anti-racist in a time when that was rare. 
and he was a terrible person. It's really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it just goes to show that cults and high control groups exist across the political spectrum, and just and somebody can use pretty much any ideology, even Mm -hmm. one that is as I think agreeable as being against racism as a means to an end, and and as a method through which somebody can build a cult of personality. So, with that in mind, do you want to give us some background on um on on Jim Jones' religious beliefs? Sure. So it turns out that Jim Jones' religious background is between he was raised Nazarene and Apostolic Pentecostal. We talked about Hillsong a few weeks ago. Hillsong is affiliated with the Assembly of God, which is one Pentecostal denomination. The Apostolic Pentecostal denomination is another dis- is another denomination within the Pentecostal faith tradition. Just like within Baptist, you have Southern Baptists, American Baptist, Missionary Baptist, lots of different flavors of non-denominational Baptist, and lots of different flavors of independent and semi-independent Baptist groups that do not have a denomination, like the IFB, the NIFB, and others. They're all Baptist, and the core theology about things like how a person attains salvation is going to be really similar. But the practices, the dress code, how the church looks, that might vary a lot. And it's very similar within the Pentecostal denominations. So Pentecostals, they're the ones that are going to be heavily focused on God and the Holy Spirit empowering people and taking an active role in their lives. Right. And this um, gift of the Holy Spirit is evidenced by healing miracles, by speaking in tongues, and by prophecies, as well as other things. So it turns out that Jim Jones and Michael Guglielmucci would actually have a lot in common uh, as far as Pentecostal people go. We're going to get to that. A few big things you would want to know about the apostolic Pentecostals as opposed to the Assembly of God Pentecostals. The apostolics are really big on rules, almost as much as the IFB. So there are modesty rules. There are purity rules like abstaining from alcohol or tobacco. There are rules about church music, just like you would find within the IFB. Many modern apostolic groups also ban makeup and ban women from cutting their hair at all. And women from these groups tend to dress a very recognizable way. It's like extremely high fashion, but very blatantly modified for modesty. No makeup, but a very Mm. deep spray tan. And then extremely elaborate, like Marie Antoinette, elaborate hairstyles with the waist-length hair that they're not allowed to cut. The other thing you'd want to know about apostolics is that they are very focused on charity, but in a way that can come off maybe a little bit holier than thou. Like, their heart is in the right place, but the vibe is slightly off. Do they tend to have the same sort of, like, anti-Catholic bent as the IFB? I have no idea. Why do you ask? Oh, because I was just wondering uh, what their position on the social gospel was. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they would they practice a lot of charity. There are a lot of specifically apostolic charities. Uh, they tend to particularly focus on orphans. I don't think I would describe them as being practicers of the social gospel. I also wouldn't really describe them as progressive. A lot of apostolic people had the anti-racist thing going for them at a time when that was not the norm, which is great. 
but they were still homophobic and fairly judgmental of others who did not live up to their purity rules. So it seems like Jim Jones grew up attending a couple of different styles of church. He attended an apostolic church as well as a Nazarene church. The Nazarenes are another denomination, a smaller denomination, who, much like apostolics and IFB, have a large emphasis on purity rules. And I don't just mean sexual purity, but like the the way that people behave, you know, don't drink because that defiles your body. Don't have extramarital sex because that defiles your body. Don't do this. Don't do that because that uh, comes between you and God. So Jim Jones, uh, he was born in 1931 in rural eastern Indiana. He grew up very poor. His father had a disability from his service in uh, the First World War. And as a result, he could not work consistently. His mother was not particularly present either. So the church kind of became a refuge for him. Right. It seems that as a child, Jones was obsessed with religion. He would imitate preachers. He lived by a strict code of conduct that was maybe a compilation of things that he learned at these different churches that he attended. He took his Bible everywhere. He would he annoyed people that he went to school with because he would preach at them over things that they were doing that he didn't approve of. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, tough hang. Yeah, um, he had just not oh. found that cult leader charisma yet, apparently. Uh, on the other hand, though, so he was like obsessed with rules and didn't drink and didn't smoke and judged people who did. But on the other hand, he was extremely vulgar. He was prone to lots of profanity and verbally abusing other people. He would just greet people with insults and kind of scatological ephemera. (laughs) I I think this dichotomy is really interesting because he doesn't change that two-sided nature of being a very spiritual person with high-minded ideals about certain parts of life. Um, combined with also being a very vulgar person with some very twisted actions and words, that doesn't change throughout his life. He's kind of always that person. Well, how many IFB pastors did you know who who were very much of the the same, oh, we're very high-minded, we're very intellectual about our theology, and then behind closed doors, they just like are, are horribly verbally abusive to everybody around them? I'm, I'm sure there are many. I have heard about many. I have not experienced that very often uh, because I was born as an assigned female at birth person. Oh, right. So You're just not in the room for I, that. I didn't get to be in the room where it happened. <laughs> the room where it happened. Okay. Um, but you I, wish I have three blocks from my house right now. I know. So I have, so I have heard. Let's not make me jealous. Let's, let's get through this episode. Come out and visit me. You can you can see it. You'll see it in real life. It's very cool. I'll do it one day. So, so I but I have heard about many IFB pastors who were that way. I noticed that when I was reading about Jones' early life, I noticed that he was really angry with what he perceived as a lack of support from his parents. And then as he moved into late teenage years and young adulthood, he was extremely angry about the racism that he saw 
uh, around him in his life. So around this time, Jim Jones was also, uh, he was getting interested in political philosophy as well. And that's very important. That is extremely important. He started attending Communist Party meetings when he was about 20, so in the early 1950s. And if the name Joseph McCarthy means anything at all to you, you probably know that the 1950s was not a great time to be affiliated with the Communist Party. Ooh, no, it wasn't, was it? Yeah. No. Uh. So if you're familiar as well with the details of the Kennedy assassination, that's is that just me? No, that's no. just you. <laughs> okay. I, I... But there was another angry young man who had conflict with his parents uh, about five years after this, who was getting involved with small local grassroots communist and socialist organizations. And that would be Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> anyway, if you've heard about him mm. being involved with like free, free play for Cuba, which you would know about if you knew about the two Oswalds theory, you'd know about Lee Harvey Oswald's involvement with the Communist Party. But again, that's probably just me. So I was going to make a different comparison, um, and I want to know what you think of it. Shoot. I was going to compare him to Jack Hiles. I mean, I feel like that is an obvious comparison to make considering this show and considering that he he ended up being a cult leader. But um, I remember uh, when we did our first Family of Fundamentalism series, uh, one of the parts of Jack Hiles' story, at least the way Jack Hiles told his story, which right. we don't know whether or not this is true... <laughs> Because uh, Jack Isle, because Jack Hiles supposedly had a a um, well, he had a Depression era upbringing, but he supposedly had an absent parent, and the church was his refuge. Now, granted, we've heard uh, uh, rumors that this may have been a fabrication uh, in order to boost his reputation within fundamentalist circles. Um, the difference I think here is Jack Hiles really did focus all of his energy into the theology and into like building his ministry and, and, and building the blueprint for building the ministry. While Jim Jones also took the political philosophy route and ended up very interested in communism. Yeah, I mean, it's a little funny to call Hiles beliefs theology because they're so rooted in wordplay and opinion. But of course, Hiles would have called them theology. So <laughs> I don't think it's a bad mm -hmm. comparison. We are certainly going to talk more about Hiles and Jones comparisons down the road for most of this episode. <laughs> so as we're coming chronologically into the early 1950s, Jim Jones is really focused on, as an early 20s young man, he's really focused on communist philosophies, anti-racist philosophies in particular, and he decided to become a Methodist minister because his wife, uh, his high school sweetheart, whom he had married, Marceline, was a Methodist. He decided to join the Methodist church, become a Methodist minister, and work on integrating, racially integrating the Methodist church that he worked for, which predictably did not go so well. I feel like he joined the Methodist church like 60 years too early. Yeah, maybe even uh, 30 to 40 years too early. So I think the thing that we focus on when we're talking about pre-People's Temple Jim Jones is that not every idea in his head is bad. Some of them are notably very good ideas. I am very pro uh, people being anti-racist. He's The thing is that he's not, he's not mentally stable. His jobs are not stable. His marriage to his wife, Marceline, even in the early days, is not stable. His political philosophies are not stable, and his personal life 
doesn't always match up with what he says he believes. The thing about Jim Jones, though, is that he's just a very compelling speaker. Yeah. I I remember I read this when he was growing up. He would practice sermons by himself. Like he would he would be alone just like in his room and he would be practicing sermons Mm -hmm. to the point where his mother thought that it was like creepy AF and it tried to stop him from attending church because she's just like, I, I'm, I'm tired of hearing you like standing in your room, just giving firebrand speeches about hellfire and, and right. <laughs> just a weird <laughs> thing to do for a child, man. That's <sighs> right. So he had been honing this talent for speaking to a crowd and leading a crowd since he was a kid. Jim Jones was practicing sermons from the time he was a little kid. And as a young adult, he attended a Pentecostal Latter Rain conference. So Latter Rain was a movement within the Pentecostal church uh, that brought, it was, it was like a, a renewed interest in these gifts of the spirit. Um, it was also integrated, uh, it, which was, interesting. So he attended this conference and a woman in the audience prophesied and pointed him out and said, this guy is a great prophet with a great future and you should listen to what he has to say. So based on her prophecy, he was invited to stand up and preach and his sermon was so good that it launched him to a very quick notoriety within the latter rain movement. So he discarded Hmm. Methodism because, uh, he was not able to integrate the church that he was working for. He just swapped denominations. And I think this is one example of, you know, his metaphorical train is going in the general right direction, but it's also off the rails. Because of this involvement with the Latter Rain movement, Jones was influenced by a preacher who went by the name of Father Divine. Father Divine is absolutely fascinating, and I wish I had like an hour to tell you about him, but I don't, so I'm going to have to skim through it. We could do another episode all about Father Divine. We might have to do an episode about Father Divine, so I'll try to avoid spoilers. Oh my god. Every single thing that like you've told me about this guy, I'm just like, that could be its own. Like We could do a <laughs> whole like mini-series, podcast mini-series all about Father Divine, just because I know. that... Like, so Father Father Divine was a popular and controversial black preacher in uh he was active starting around 1909 and then he was still around by the time that Jim Jones got involved in the Latter Rain movement. We don't actually know his origin story or his birth name. His parents were probably freed slaves based on the records that we have and don't have about him in the part of the country that he came from in the time that he was born. He was originally a father, so Father Divine was the follower of a preacher named Samuel Morris who claimed that he was God. And then there was another follower of Samuel Morris who said, actually, yes, you are God, but everyone is God. And Father Divine wasn't a fan of that, so he claimed that he was God. And <laughs> built his own following of people who also believed that he was God. <laughs> As you do. Hmm. So the long and short of Father Divine's story, um, 
integrated but mostly black commune uh, claimed to be God, used racist people's racism to help himself out, uh, which I definitely support. Like how? Okay, so someone sold Father Divine a house in New York State, making him and his commune members the first black landowners in that town. But the reason that the original owner of the house agreed to sell it to him to begin with was because he didn't like his neighbor and he wanted to piss off the neighbor by selling the house next door to a black commune. <laughs> oh, man. And like, so that's incredible. I am. That's- yeah, I am always for. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. If you get a chance to like use somebody's racism against them and further yourself in the process, I'm generally always going to be in favor of that. <laughs> Get f- racist. Uh, that's amazing. So Father that's Divine in- is like, oh, you don't like your neighbor? You know what would really piss your neighbor off? You know what would really Man. ruin his life? So that part that part I is great. <laughs> yeah, what's not so great is that there were a lot of rumors, of course, about sexual impropriety between Father Divine and young female members of his congregation. It is probable, possible to probable, that that rumor was started by racists who wanted to get rid of him and run him out of town. That's true. They do tend to make up rumors of of uh, black men being sexual abusers to try and, you know, as like a scare tactic. So definitely take that with a grain of salt. It's possible that it's true, but it's probable that it's not. At one point, Father Divine was arrested based on some of these rumors, and the judge who was given his case just happened to die of a heart attack. And then Father Divine took credit for his death and said that he smote him with his divine power. Also, there were a lot of healing miracles claimed, that sort of thing. Father Divine and his followers were involved. They were they were not in the Communist Party they were allied with the Communist Party because Father Divine was personally pro-capitalist and very Christian nationalist, but they they had a, a kind of an ally-type relationship with the local Communist Party. I, I bring up Father Divine because he's interesting, but also because Jim Jones plagiarized a lot of Father Divine's teachings. So Father Divine preached against drinking, dancing, alcohol consumption. Father Divine also preached against marriage in general. Uh, He separated husbands and wives, although he was married himself. So the do as I say, not as I do is definitely something that Jim Jones adopted. Jim Jones also later claimed to be a reincarnation of Father Divine, although Jones was in his 30s when Father Divine died, and that's not really how reincarnation works. Mm. I think this connection is important because I want to illustrate what I mean when I say that Jim Jones' train was headed the right general direction, but also completely off the rails. He had the anti-racist, gay rights, pro-feminist thing pretty well on lock. So, like, points taken away for claiming that he was the reincarnation of a man who was God on Earth. But also, Jim Jones, as a white man, was claiming to be the reincarnation of a black man, which was kind of radical at the time. Jim Jones, a.k.a. Jesus Dolezal. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of, though, yeah. Yeah, man. Well, what's really weird is that... I don't really see Jim Jones talking about reincarnation. 
other than this time yeah no like reincarnation is not a mainstream christian belief or even like very much not but it's also not a part of jim jones personal philosophy or theology right because he's not a mainstream christian either but i can't think of any like are there any christian groups that actually do like are into reincarnation that that's their their dealio not that i'm aware of i'm sure there are some some very small groups out there somewhere but nobody that i that I'm familiar with. No, because it's much more of like a, a a Buddhist thing, right? Yeah. Buddhists are, are hella into reincarnation. They believe in that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, huh. also we keep referring to Jim Jones as a Christian. Um, that's the way that he presented himself to the world. By this point, though, in the 1950s, as he is founding the People's Temple in Indiana. He is having private conversations where he mentions that he thinks he might be an atheist. Really? Yeah, and and he's huh. pastoring a Christian church uh, at the time. That should be a disqualifying a, a trait. He's kind of going back and forth, and he's he's starting to build his own philosophy that we will eventually get deeper into. I'm thinking about this because, like, we're uh, the common communist states like Russia. Or, or, or like the Soviet Union at the time and a lot of the Eastern Bloc states and, and China as well, they were like specifically anti-religious. Like they, they were right. like banning religious practice. Jones is going to pick up bits and pieces of that ideology and paste them together to make his own thing. But we're not quite there yet. Okay. There's a There's a distinct difference between... 1950s Jim Jones and the 1960s and beyond Jim Jones. This is another correlation that I would like to make to Jack Hiles, actually. So Hiles' preaching had a lot of consistencies throughout his life, but there was a definite watershed around 1972. And around that time, First Baptist Church of Hammond was awarded that plaque for being the world's largest Sunday school. And I really think there was a turning point there for Hiles. I'm not saying that Hiles or Jones was a fantastic person or doctrinally spot on before these watersheds in their lives. But in both men's lives and teachings, there was a definite shift, a time period we can say before this, things were different. And after this, things were different from the way they were before. So post Father Divine, Jim Jones is just totally gone. Yeah, but I don't think that Father Divine was actually the turning point. For Jack Hiles, the turning point was being named the world's largest Sunday school. It really went to his head. I think he realized the type of power that he could have over people, and it turned him into a different person. It's around the time he allegedly started his affair with Jenny Nistrick. I think that is absolutely related. For Jim Jones, I think the turning point was actually that he started to take a lot of drugs. Well, it was the 1960s, and you know what they say, when in Rome? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> except for <laughs> except for Jim Jones was an abstinence preacher who preached that his people should not uh, consume alcohol or drugs or nicotine. <laughs> so Jones was not claiming to be God or anything like that for several more years uh, until after the time that his drug use started in the early 60s. But Ten years before that, he founded the People's Temple in Indiana in the 1950s. Sadie, how do you feel about people calling their institution like the people's as as like an adjective, as like a modifier? I have a 
a vaguely positive association when it comes to like small businesses. If I mm. was looking for a coffee and a bagel and I came across a place called the People's Cafe, I would expect, oh, these people probably have vegan food and like a worker owned co-op and they roast their own coffee and they probably have really funky like lavender paint on the walls with a bunch of art that looks like it was painted by somebody who has been microdosing mushrooms every day since 1978. (laughs) This is a place I would like to go get my coffee and bagel. I don't know. For me calling your thing, the people's something, it's kind of, you know how like my take on red delicious apples. I get that. Yeah. If, if you've got a, tell people that it's the people's thing then chances are that it's not really the people's thing it's probably kind of authoritarian like the people's republic of china or um the democratic people's republic of korea mm-hmm. <laughs> what was it the P- lester roloff his church was called the people's baptist church which is weird I think you're right <laughs> the people's temple was definitely authoritarian although it got about 100 times worse by 20 years or 30 years down the road. I think this episode is pretty front-loaded with anything nice a person could possibly truthfully say about Jim Jones, and it's all downhill from here. Throughout the entire existence of the People's Temple, Jones claimed to do a lot of healing miracles. I referenced Michael Guglielmucci in the intro to this episode. (laughs) And that's because Jim Jones similarly faked healing people. So he would plant people in the healing line who would claim to have cancer. And then when they got healed by him, they would cough up like chicken gizzards or chicken livers that they had hidden in their mouths. And then they would claim that those, this was my, look, I just coughed up my tumor. I'm healed of cancer. Oh. (sighs) Oh my God. Well, he also, on one occasion, had a young woman from the church drugged and then put a cast on her arm while she was out. And then when she woke up, he took her to a healing service and dramatically took off the cast and said, look, your arm is miraculously healed. Wait, so if if, if people are having like raw chicken gizzards in their mouths, aren't they getting like salmonella? I don't know. I didn't read any stories about whether or not people got some salmonella. How do you say that? Salmonella. Salmonella. Yeah. So the people's temple in Indiana did have a little bit of wacky theology, uh, such as the whole who is and isn't God incarnate and chicken gizzards. Uh, But Jim Jones was more focused on political action when he was first starting the people's temple in Indiana. He, with the help of his Black members, and this was a a, a fully integrated church uh, in the full gospel denomination, with the help of his Black members, he set up sting operations to find local restaurants that would refuse to serve Black customers. Really? Yeah, and then report them for breaking the law. You know what? I kind of f*** with that. Right. Like, Man. Like, no, that's that's good. It's like, uh, isn't there a like an SNL sketch? That's good. That's bad. That's good. I don't know. I don't know that one. It's kind of, uh, kind of Jim Jones to me. He, with his wife, he became the first white couple to adopt a black child in the state of Indiana. And I actually have, mm. um, you know, I don't have a complete story, but he had a few natural children uh, of his own with his wife. He also adopted several Korean children and several Black children. 
we do not have the full story, but I have never, I have not come across a story of him treating any of his children any differently based on whether they were his biological children or what the color of their skin was. I mean, but those weren't any, those weren't the only children who were like legally his children. We're going to get to that. (laughs) (laughs) His legal, illegal children. So as far as authoritarianism beyond the code of conduct for his group, Jones was developing an idea that he called apostolic socialism, which he had not yet told his people about. He was already implementing parts of apostolic socialism by demanding that people send him as much money as possible while he traveled around South and Central America looking for a church to a place to move his church. He had become convinced that nuclear war was coming and that Indiana was for some reason going to be a very dangerous place to be. So he had read in some article that Central America would be the safest place to be during such an event, and he wanted to move his church there. While he was on these travels looking for a place to move the church, he insisted that the church send him more and more money. People were not super happy with this. They felt like he was being sent too much of the church's money. Kind of a Warren Jeffs situation, like towards the end when Warren Jeffs was on the run you gotta send me more money, you gotta send me more money. Eventually, he was not able to find a suitable place in South or Central America, so he moved the People's Temple instead to California in 1965. This is when he started doing a a lot of drugs. (laughs) This is when the theology goes off the rails as well. He had often claimed to have the gift of prophecy before this move to California. After the move to California, He was more focused on the gift of prophecy. He also made a bigger deal out of his claims of having ESP, uh, extrasensory perception, or like psychic abilities, the ability to read people's minds. He always claimed that he had these abilities. He just made a much bigger deal of them after getting to California. He also unveiled his his philosophy of apostolic socialism that he had been working on as well as a bunch of other new, fun, theological rabbit holes. So out of curiosity, what is apostolic socialism? It's actually a really interesting theology. It's actually theological. Oh, so it's like it's like a real thing. It's not like... No, this, it, it, is, it is a real idea, and it's not a totally crazy idea. He correlated capitalism and racism to original sin and socialism to salvation. He was saying the Bible is a metaphor for something bigger, and that bigger thing is socialism. The direct quote from him is, if you're born in capitalist America, racist America, fascist America, then you're born in sin. Interesting. Okay. I don't hate all of that. I hmm. I don't know. I I <laughs> I don't agree theologically, but philosophically, I don't hate that. So hmm, okay, I find this kind of funny. Actually, I find it hilarious. I've felt for years that leftists who are awaiting the revolution and Christians who are awaiting the second coming of Jesus are virtually indistinguishable from one another. Especially considering the evangel the, the evangelistic nature 
of both of those groups. Cause like if you've if you've ever been on the receiving end of <laughs> that pitch from either of them, it's a, like a, it's honestly a pretty similar experience for for both sides of it. You know what I'm saying? Do you do Yeah. You, I like you know, it's like I think you're expressing that they are kind of a mirror image in, yes. in a lot of ways of each other. Yeah. And it's it's just like uh uh it's very much just like a well, how do you know that it's going to be better? Well, trust me. Mm-hmm. Kind of kind of thing and I'm like, uh maybe not. That that doesn't really fly for me. So I'm not sure if you would be aware of this, but you usually when Christians get baptized, we are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Evidently, Jim Jones was mm. baptizing people in the holy name of socialism. Wow. That's that's incredible. Yeah. Wow. This that, is the kind mm. of thing that I I very much was not aware of. That's true. That's truly wild, man. That's it's really something. This is like some some like what if being a tanky was religious was like your religion. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Kind of. Like that's yeah, that's pretty much man. what this was uh, with a uh, a very strong and and pretty respectable anti racist focus. This is also where Jones. So after the move to California, <laughs> this is. Man. This, this is where he know. started to pull his more famous stunts. He released a tract called The Letter Killeth and a corresponding sermon in which he said that Christians were heretically worshiping the King James Bible. Wow. Fair enough, right? I mean, f- yeah. <laughs> uh, we may or may not have just done an episode about that. You, you literally said that like three weeks ago in, in the podcast episode. Yeah. That, uh, wow. <laughs> so Jones said... Number one, the King James Bible contradicts itself, and that makes it invalid. That is a point that I mostly disagree with. Uh, The contradictions that he pulled out, I read this thing that he wrote, the contradictions that he pulled out in the Bible are not the own that he thinks they are. (laughs) Well, it's not like the one that you you were talking about where Jesus is quoting... Right. Um, there's So one that I remember, I don't have this pamphlet open in my tabs because it closed like 30 tabs already. But the one of the things that he pulled out is that the Matthew genealogy of Jesus and the Luke genealogy of Jesus are different. Those are different because one is the genealogy of Mary and one is the genealogy of Joseph. Uh, Jim Jones pulled out contradictions in the King James Bible. Uh, I don't, I read, I skimmed this pamphlet. I don't really agree that most of the things that he thought were contradictions were contradictions or a problem, particularly. He also said, however, that King King James was a slaveholding racist and capitalist, and that's why the King James Version is corrupt. So, again, he's got a fair point. He also banned the singing of Amazing Grace in people's temple meetings because the man who wrote Amazing Grace was a slave trader. Really? Yeah. Wow. He banned all hymns written by people who were involved in perpetuating slavery. So you could say that Jim Jones invented cancel culture. <laughs> um, <laughs> Jones' wife, Marceline, later said that he told her 
that he was trying to use religion to free people from religion. After 1970, Jones was publicly admitting to being an atheist. Pre-1970, he would say it to his closest associates, to the people at the top of his church hierarchy in private, but he would not say it publicly. He did preach against the Bible on a regular basis. He would say things like, this book has been used to hold you down for centuries. Preaching to an integrated audience, he's not incorrect that the Bible was literally used to justify racism and slavery within very recent memory. And this message was well received by his congregation. Where he got himself in trouble was when he would pull publicity stunts like public publicly urinating on a Bible in front of his congregation. That didn't go over quite so well, especially with people outside his church. This is truly, this is nutty stuff. You know who this is reminding me of is the satanic temple. A little bit. Okay, yeah. There's little little bits of that. Uh Uh-huh. Not saying that Lucian Graves is a cult leader or not saying that Lucian Graves is, uh, you know, is is this level of evil, but this kind of like stunt kind of thing and this kind of like very edgy anti-religious religion. Mm-hmm. kind of thing and and being on the like <clears throat> oh we're free thinkers out here that's really right. interesting man hmm. so he did that uh he would have members of his congregation stomp on bibles in meetings and he would say things like you know if this was really the word of god then god would strike you dead why don't you show that you believe me and stomp on this bible and see if god strikes you dead or not so he is placing himself above hmm. god do, do you see what i mean yes and that's also very ap- like the the apostolic or the pentecostal style of him where he's like relying on the the actions of god in the uh-huh. daily life oh, right. he's saying oh if if what you've been told about religion was true then god would strike you down but you trust me more than you trust what you're being told about religion Right, because he's also done all of these like faith healing things uh-huh. where he's saying the power of God can literally do X, Y, Z thing right in front of your eyes. Mm-hmm. Magic tricks. Uh, and he is also claiming that because he is God, he has ESP. He has psychic abilities. So he would, by this point, he had amassed a fairly large congregation and he would claim that he could meet you and just tell you everything about you. Well, he would have he would have church members gather information about you, like your mother's maiden name or what medicines you take or what news you watch on TV, that sort of detail that a stranger wouldn't know. And then he would make a big show. He'd meet you for the first time and he'd look very intensely into your eyes and bring up your mother's maiden name as proof of his ESP. It has, it's not that he wasn't a manipulator and a faker from early on, but once they get to California, this really ramps up. Also ramping up, also ramping up is his control and manipulation of his members. He had dragged an entire group of people across the country, and that isolation alone bred more control. It seems like he was both saying he was an atheist and also claiming to be God privately for many years. And this is where those teachings, they don't become public to people outside the church, but they become public to most people inside the church. And like Jack Hiles, 
he started to prophesy horrible things like car accidents, illness, and death over people who don't follow his teachings. So Jim Jones could have come up with the brain in the jar story. He absolutely could have. He told similar stories. I have read transcripts of him telling similar stories. Also, now that he had everyone living in a commune in California, he was able to institute extremely culty measures of control beyond the threats and the prophecies. He was able to reduce food rations as a punishment for disobedience. We've talked extensively on this podcast about how a lack of food erodes a person's will. He could also increase or reduce someone's work schedule at the people's temple so he could control how much sleep a person was able to get. That's not too different from what we were reading about at the Agape boarding school either. What is it that we're always saying? There are only so many methods to exert this kind of control over a group of people, and all cults are eventually going to use at least some of these methods. Yeah, I mean, that's why... I mean, Stephen Hassan, really, with the bite model, it's so useful. And it's so effective at identifying these methods of cult control. We've talked about Jack Hiles using uh, conformity in a crowd and public humiliation as means of control on multiple occasions. Uh, Jones did very similar things, like I, I read one transcript where he had the entire congregation clap together, like clap on a beat together. And people who he saw not clapping, he had his security guards pull them out of the church. That's like power in the the blood, right? What you would do with- Yes. And this is why I am so triggered at concerts. If the singer's like, everybody put your hands in the air. Everybody repeat these words after me. Oh, come on. You got to do it. Like, That is so triggering. So Jones is using that kind of technique. He is also using public humiliation, but in a different and much more extreme way than Jack Hiles did. Um, We've talked about Hiles, like, oh, he strategically make fun of people in a way that was both a compliment and an insult. And he used that power to manipulate people into behaving the way he wanted them to. The Jones version is just um, much more extreme. I am not going to be telling you (laughs) on this podcast. I've linked an article in the source post that describes some of the humiliation rituals that he put people through. Uh, It is tagged with a warning. It is clearly tagged with a warning. It is violent and very disturbing. What I do want to talk about in detail is the blackmail elements of this. Because that is slightly less disturbing and really fascinating as well. So one thing Mm. that Jones would do to blackmail his members is he would make followers admit on camera to high-profile crimes, such as the assassination of Robert Kennedy. And then if the followers (laughs) stepped out of line down the road, he would threaten to give the tapes where they admitted to these crimes to the police. But they knew who killed Robert Kennedy. It was Sharon Sharon. They got him right away. Yes. It was like big news. Everyone knew that, like who killed RFK. That's why this is such a perfect example of cult control. Because making someone admit to a crime on camera is blackmail. But this particular blackmail wouldn't work without the brainwashing that Jones was also carrying out. Yes, he did the blackmail part. But he also had to brainwash his followers into believing that if he gave this tape to the police 
they would let their original suspect or convicted criminal go because they would believe him and they would believe this confession on tape. Man, what? The thing I just, I just have to keep, this isn't that different from like intimate partner violence though. When an abuser Mm -hmm. tells their victim that, you know, if you go out and you, and you report it, no one's going to believe you. Yes. It's the same thing as that. Man. Because there are only so many ways to control another human being in a coercive way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think this would be a good place to go take up the offering because when we come back, I want to talk about some of the political and personal connections that Jones made that made his people likely to believe him when he made these outlandish claims. Okay. Well, I'm really excited for that. Yeah. So uh, we'll take up the offering, then we'll be right back. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, That group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We are back from our break. So now when Sadie and I were figuring out how to do this episode, um, Sadie really wanted to explore the people's temple from the perspective of people who went through it. So from here on out, I think that's like the, the angle that we're going to be taking. Yeah. Mostly. It's because of the nature of our show and the comparisons that we wanted to make to Jack Hiles. We couldn't start this episode without talking about Jim Jones. But many family members and survivors feel that he is often given all of the attention when people tell this story, when really the people who died and the people who escaped death should be given much more priority. And I certainly agree with that, especially because we are talking about a white leader who led or forced hundreds of people of color to their deaths by capitalizing on their disenfranchisement. So with that in mind, I want to introduce you to a few people, and we're going to follow their stories through the second half of this episode. The first person that I want to introduce you to is Leslie Wagner Wilson. It was around 1969 
that Leslie, Wag- Leslie Wagner Wilson's family joined the People's Temple. She was 13 at the time her family joined. I found myself really identifying with her more than a lot of the other stories that we're going to tell because Leslie was raised within the group that she eventually escaped. As a very young person, as a teenager, she bought into the beliefs that she was taught. Her mother, her sister, and her brother were also members. Her mother, Inez Wagner, joined the People's Temple around 1969 because she thought it would help Leslie's older sister, Michelle, who was a teenager going through a rough time at the moment. What was the People's Temple like for young people who were involved? I'm curious. It, I haven't found a lot of information at all on that. We don't have a lot of people who survived who right. were teenagers in the group. Duh. I, I, I'm, I mean, I'm just wondering, like, if they had, like, a youth ministry. You know what I'm no, saying? Like, I think how teenagers, they were... I think children were treated like children and teenagers were treated like adults. Okay. Hmm. This is going, yeah. this is going to be a recurring theme. We, and this is one reason I think people focus too much attention on Jim Jones, because we have extensive information about what he was doing all this time, because he made hours and hours and hours of audio tapes of everything that was going through his head all the time. Uh, But about 90% of the congregation in Guyana died on November 18th, 1978. So we have some records, we have some accounts of daily life in Jonestown and from earlier days in California at the People's Temple, but we don't have as much information as we would like to have. One of the things I'm wondering about is if they have the same kind of purity culture as the IFB. Oh, okay. Yeah. I can give some info on that. Jones was against extramarital sex. Vaguely, I don't think it was enforced at all because I've turned up a lot of records of kids born to unmarried parents through the People's Temple. The issue is not about abstinence as a form of purity. It was more abstinence as a form of asceticism, more like fasting. Mm. That's how it was seen. Uh, Jones was also not so hot on marriage in general. He would allow marriages within the group and uh, childbearing within families. He didn't encourage marriage. He also... Trigger warning for assault, but he also sexually assaulted and coerced other men's wives. He raped members of the congregation, and he fathered at least one child with a member. Well, I'm kind of I'm also wondering, like, what kind of people are joining this because it's in California, and he's very just like it, it, it's, it's it seems like very crunchy, very granola mm-hmm. to me. Um, like, so is it like hippies that are joining it? It's all kinds of it's all kinds of people. It's a lot of hippies and flower child type people, for sure, but also people who were teachers and worked in local government and attorneys and (laughs) architects and switchboard operators. It's all kinds of people. So just anybody. Yeah. Just like a a, a smorgasbord, like a a veritable cornucopia. All the kinds of people that you would find in California in the late 60s, early 70s, honestly, because his message was attractive to a lot of people. I want to talk about Timothy Stone. He was a 
very socially aware hippie attorney. He uh, went to law school. He was like a hippie flower child, California dude. He went to law school because he wanted to help other hippie type people when they got into legal trouble because of protest activities, which is pretty rad. He would like have a primary job doing regular attorney things and he would take on pro bono cases for people whose causes he believed in. And that was kind of his jam. He encountered the People's Temple through his day job and he was so impressed with what he saw that he and his wife Grace became members. They had a child together named John Stone and two weeks after John's birth, Jim Jones claimed that he had had a sexual relationship with Grace, Timothy's wife, and he forced Timothy to sign an affidavit stating that Jim Jones was John Stone's father and that the birth certificate which listed Timothy as the father was incorrect. This will become extremely important later on in the story. What's his motivation to do this, though? What like Was it so he could have legal authority over children born into the temple so that he can use the kids as leverage against the parents. So number one, um, Jim Jones was just mentally ill and paranoid and delusional. So a lot of the things that he did are without explanation, without reason in the case. And he didn't do this to every member who had a child within the group. Actually, John Stone is the only one that I am aware of that he specifically had the birth certificate amended to say that he was the father or tried to have the birth certificate amended. In the case of John Stone, I think Jim Jones was aware that Grace in particular, the child's mother, was not as, in the IFB term, sold out as Jim Jones wanted her to be. And he thought that if he had legal claim to the child, that Grace and Timothy would have to remain members of the church because now he's got a legal claim to their kid. Right. Oh, and he sees Timothy as Timothy is this lawyer. Who yeah. He can. Timothy's he's been like, doing legal work. Yes. Timothy is a good lawyer and he's been doing legal work for the church and Jones needs him. So Jones sees that Grace is kind of mm. one foot in, one foot out. So while she is freshly postpartum, he coerces her husband into signing away part of his legal rights to his child so that he can keep the wife, so that he can keep the husband for the free legal work. Wow. Mm -hmm. However. Man, wow. Mm. That's devious. Yes. This is an awful thing to do. And like I said, it is not going to get better. This also fit in, though, with the, like, twisted socialist and communist ideals that Jones was pushing harder and harder every day. It's like, this is, these are our children. This isn't your child. This is our child. This is, this child belongs to the community. He very much encouraged children being raised communally rather than by their biological parents. Earlier, we talked about Father Divine. He split husbands and wives in housing. So he would have women's housing and men's housing. And he encouraged abstinence from sex. Joan's ideas were a further twisting of Father Divine's ideas, and it is not about sexual purity or sexual what what is moral and what is not moral. It's about control and domination. I want to go back to Leslie's story, though. Leslie married a man within the group, Joseph Lafayette Wilson, Joe Wilson. Joe was one of Jim Jones' security detail. 
they had a son together, Jakari Wilson. All of these listed family members, as well as her brother-in-law, whose family was also involved with the People's Temple, and a niece and a nephew by her sister, Michelle, moved to Guyana later in the story. So how did Jim Jones actually go about recruiting people? So after the move to Ukiah and Redwood Valley, California, Jones used that compound as a base, and he had members travel on buses up and down California and even into other states to recruit people and fundraise. Oh, so it's like Jack Hiles bus ministry. Sure. Like large scale. Sort of, yeah. Man. This all just rhymes with e- with each other, I know. you know? Like <laughs> The thing is that Jones is so Jones would have large evangelistic meetings and you remember how John Todd was able to travel all over the country claiming all sorts of things that never happened? Yes. Yeah, this is like 3 or 4 years before that. We talked in that episode You just call a pastor and say, hey, I'm a Christian minister. Can I use your building for a meeting on Saturday night? And the pastor would be like, sure thing, brother. We'll give you a love offering. Not like he, they can just like Google. They can't Google. That's the thing that I keep forgetting is that before the internet, you had no clue who any of these people were. You just like, I mean, you would need references. Like he would have needed references to to be able to, to, Mm -hmm. man. So so he would have these large evangelistic healing services and he would you know invite all the people his members would go canvas the area invite all the people who didn't have anything to do to this service solicit donations and they would say oh our our leader Jim Jones he's a prophet and he's a healer and he has ESP and do you want to come hear him speak on Saturday, if you have any illnesses, he can heal you of your illnesses if you have enough faith. And people would either come to the service to see this guy who's supposedly a prophet and has healing abilities and has ESP, or they would maybe at least give the People's Temple member some money to donate to the cause. He would have these meetings. He would preach this socialist gospel. He would have healing services. And of course, church members were planted in the healing line so that they could cough up chicken livers and claim to be healed from cancer. They also brought in large offerings at these healing services that helped fund the church's land acquisitions and other work. He was preaching a message that was so attractive to (laughs) hippies and the poor and the disenfranchised. I feel like I, I just feel like every single cult is the same story, but with different characters. Yeah. So I read an entire sermon of Jones from this general time period. It is. Um, I'm finding this is curious. Uh, it, this is interesting to me. Tell me. He managed to put so many of his ideologies into one sermon. Of course, the man preached like three and four hour and six hour long sermons. So I shouldn't really be surprised. But topics include, let's see, uh, that slavery was bad, we shouldn't sing Amazing Grace because the author was a slave trader, how racism is denying the divinity of each person, how people should have access to healthcare, education, and housing, and how being gay is not a sin. Which sounds pretty good, right? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Topics in this sermon also included a long rant about how the Bible is dumb and anybody who believes it literally is stupid. Those are quotes. 
That's uh, not going to go very well. No. Uh, how he has healed people, how he has taken a brave stand to say these things, even though it loses him followers and gets him threatened, how he has taken care of people, the money that he has given to congregants, which brings to mind Heil's response to the Sumner letter, for sure. Oh, that's very much of yeah. uh, Jack Hiles. That's right out of Jack Hiles' playbook. And also just like a lot of claiming that he is God and explaining to people how that works. Or actually, I'm thinking about it. This is before Jack Hiles. So Jack yeah. Hiles stole all his stole his playbook from Jim Jones. You know? Is, sure. Man. So this sermon <sighs> begins with the quote, for some unexplained set of reasons, I happen to be selected to be God. He claims that he healed people. <laughs> Sometimes it's just a late response that from is you. A, that is a quote, man. That but is... do you see what he's doing? He's like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, I'm God, but it's really just not, it's not just very much of a big deal. And NBD. You know, yeah, just like. I'm low-key God. I'm low-key God, and you know I can heal people and I can hurt people, but don't worry about it. I've got it under control, and you're still great. Like it's self-effacing in a very um, disturbing way. I've never heard of anybody be refer to themselves as "I am God" and be considered to be self-effacing. That yeah, is, yeah, but Jones pulled it off, which was why he was popular because he was that good at manipulation. I'm the most humble person to ever live. I am the most <laughs> humble person to ever be God. Man. Oh my God. This So, and, and then like after this very like calming, gentle explanation of how he's God, but it's okay. And he's got it all under control. He goes into claims that he has healed people, but also that he has hurt people in punishment. And he will say things like, I had to do it. I had to punish him. I did not want to do it. Oh, no, it grieved my heart to punish him in that way. But you will all agree that it had to be done. It was justice. Like, that's how he will talk about these people that he claims to have hurt in punishment. He also tells his people, just like Hiles, that if they disobey him, horrible things will happen to them. He also said that people who were unwilling to give all of their money to the church should just leave. Uh, wow. And a note on that, um, he specifically recruited older members often because they would just sign their social security check over to the church. And the church would, you know, one of those scams. That's so predatory. Like, well, like the f***ing nursing home in Breaking Bad or um, Better Call Saul. Oh, I haven't seen Better Call okay. Saul. For those for those who have. Um, a common That's scam. That's so predatory, man. It's a common scam. And uh, um, he would do that. People who collected welfare or other state assistance, he would, oh, well, you know, you join us and you're a communist and everything and you're a socialist and everything will be taken care of for you. You'll have free childcare, free housing, free food. All you have to do is sign your government checks over to the church. Oh, it's like what Warren Jeff's people were doing with yes. the FLDS and the food stamp scam. Yeah, but less fraud. Like these are people who were actually very eligible for the support that they were they, they were receiving. Uh, they were just conned into giving it to Jim Jones because he would say things like, "Well, I'm God, and if you don't sign over your whole check to the church, then like I'm God, and socialism is salvation, and capitalism is sin. So if you don't sign your entire check from the capitalist government over to me, then you are living in capitalism, which is sin." 
and you have to find salvation by giving in to socialism. That is so fucking backwards. The, wait, the check for that you get from the government because that's is capitalist, capitalist money. Sin. sin money. Yeah. So no, you, it's from the government. How is the government giving you money? Capitalism. Because the government is inherently capitalist, according to Jim Jones. Oh my God, this is so. Do you oh, see like how he has God. twisted this? Because he has got, <sighs> if you dial it way back, like fifteen years previous, he has got a background in legitimate anti-racist activism. He legitimately was making a difference in his world and his community. And you fast forward that 15 years later, after some drugs and some ego tripping, and he is manipulating people using these ideologies that started out in an okay place. Man, this is like, I feel like I, he, like hearing him say these things, it makes me feel like I'm in the coffee shop at uh, Willamette University, in the bistro at Willamette University, having this, uh, having somebody... Um, evangelized to me for uh for bernie sanders <laughs> that, that's like legitimately how it feels like to 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 be hearing these things again um yeah i mean not saying that bernie sanders is jim jones or that his followers are cult members that's not no. what or that's not what i'm saying here but it's just like the capitalism is sin and uh and you need to rid yourself from it in a revolutionary action is like yeah that's a conversation that I've had that I've been forced to endure. That, that, I, that I've, yeah, been forced to endure from. Ugh. Right. And this, this concept of a revolutionary action being your salvation from capitalism is definitely going to come back. <sighs> so Jones is preaching this type of sermon in different places all around California, but if he's preaching to people in a poor neighborhood or a black neighborhood, or if he's preaching to a group of former hippies or current hippies, you have to understand that this is a fairly attractive message. He's saying to people, if you don't have anyone who lives up to your ideals, join our group. We live up to your ideals and we are creating a socialist paradise on earth. If you don't have anywhere else to go, if you've been disenfranchised, if the system is not working for you because the system was designed to keep you down, come to us. We'll take you in. We'll feed and shelter you. And we are building this paradise together and you can be a part of it. So, of course, this is attractive to multiple groups of people. Man. A homeless veteran named Odell Rhodes, who we are going to follow a little bit through the back half of this episode, heard, he just, he wasn't even in one of these meetings. He heard that there was this group that would take him in and he was, he was homeless and he walked into the people's temple to get off the streets and became a member and ended up uh, going to Guyana a few years later. And we'll, we'll follow that whether makes me he, so mad. Whether he lived or died and, and what happened in the end of his story. So by mm. 1970, the People's Temple had expanded to larger facilities in San Francisco and LA, as well as their base location in Redwood Valley, Ukiah, California. Membership by 1970 grew to at least 3,000 people, 
Although Jones claimed that it was more like 20,000 people, they ran nursing homes and homes for foster children, as well as other similar businesses that were connected to the church. And through these services and these businesses, Jim Jones made strong political connections in California. In 1972, Reverend Lester Kinsolving, who was an Episcopal priest and the religion editor for the San Francisco Examiner, wrote a series of articles that were the first public expose of the People's Temple and of Jim Jones. This series, called the Kinsolving Series, cast doubt on Jones' healing power. It took issue with his claims of divinity (laughs) for obvious reasons, uh, as well as exposing how Jim Jones tricked people into thinking that he had ESP or psychic abilities. It also exposed child marriages that had taken place in the group. Uh, It contained allegations of Jones speaking inappropriately about sex and masturbation to school children. Um, He was a substitute teacher. He was not a very good substitute teacher. Man, I've had some weird substitute. You never went to public school, Sadie. No, I've never had a substitute teacher that I can think of. Man, sometimes you get a substitute teacher come in and you like you know, oh man, it's it's going to be a field day. We could do whatever we want. And sometimes you get a substitute teacher come in and you're just like, this motherfucker is crazy. Like, yeah, he was one of those. He would he taught night school while he was building up the People's Temple, and he didn't really teach the subjects. He mostly taught about socialism and masturbation. Um, uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna mm. make a joke, but I feel like that belongs on the Patreon at least. I mean, <laughs> I do feel like uh, being a substitute teacher and going in to teach people about socialism is a form of masturbation. Oh, yeah, probably. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Okay, we gotta quit joking because the next part is sad and serious. This series also contained descriptions of child torture at the People's Temple's children's programs. Oh! Yeah. Very agape-esque. Oh, no! So this was an eight-part series that was intended to be an eight-part series. Jones was really pissed about this series coming out and members of the people's temple picketed and wrote letters of protest to the editor of the examiner defending jones defending their group so on and so forth and the series ended up being pulled when only four of the eight articles had been published really Mm -hmm. oh that's because Mm. he had a huge he had an army of people that he could mobilize to he would have everybody and because they live, the majority of them live communally. They all go to his church. He is the leader of all these people. He can. He has all their money. He has control of their food and their work schedule. He can say, nobody sleeps tonight until each person writes five letters to the editor of the examiner using different names. Tomorrow, I'm going to have my security guards go out and mail them from a hundred different mailboxes across the city, and people would have to do it. And then the next day, the <clears throat> the editor of the newspaper gets fifteen thousand letters. That's really cowardly of the examiner to just pull that story. If I mean, if if you're telling a story that's controversial, you're going to get backlash from people. 
And if what you have to do is you have to say to your reporter, is the reporting good and is the reporting accurate? And if the reporting is good and accurate, you run it anyway. Man, that's cowardly. Man, it is, oh. but also Jones had the power to make it appear that the backlash was much larger than it actually was. Who cares about the backlash? Well, the examiner, apparently. Good, if it's a story that you've got to tell, it's a story that you've got to tell. Well, Jones also had, he had other connections that could also support him when this sort of thing started to come out. Like who? A year late, well, a year later in 1973, reporter Ross Case uncovered evidence, again, TW for sexual assault, I'm sorry, uh, Ross Case uncovered evidence that Jones had raped a male member of the congregation. He also had further evidence exposing how Jones was faking healings and how he pulled off the ESP magic trick. So Ross Case published this article, and I've linked all of these in the source post uh, on Patreon, but uh, Case reported the rape that he uncovered to the police in Ukiah, California, and they took no action on finding out if it was accurate or prosecuting Jim Jones. Of course they didn't. Mm-hmm. Because nobody nobody investigates sexual assaults. Yeah, but when uh, like when other things happened that needed to be investigated, the police similarly had Jones back. What so do you have them like bought off or something or or what? Yeah, or they were members or he convinced them that he had ESP and that he could find out things about them. I don't know how he did it, but it's fairly obvious that he did it, that he had the police on his side somehow. We don't know what backroom dealings went down to make that happen, but it's pretty clear that it happened. Either that or he had like, uh, you know, say you have this commune and the police come to investigate and then you, you know, I guess you you trade them uh, 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 sexual favors or something and then you keep a videotape of that. Like like you do some some Vladimir yeah. Putin compromat. That's and- totally possible. Like I said, we don't know how he did it. We know that he had police backing. So this uh, 1972 is around the time that Jones met Linda Harris, who shortly after changed her name to Sharon Amos. We don't know exactly what year Jones and Linda, aka Sharon met, but we know that she was deeply involved with the church and a member of Jones' inner circle by 1973. So sometime before 1973 is when they met. Sharon had a tough time in life. Both of her parents died. Her dad died when she was a kid. Her mom died when she was a young adult. Sharon had epilepsy, and she was a single mom to a young daughter, Leanne, who had congenital heart problems. Sharon was doing this all by herself and taking care of her grandmother who had dementia, and she managed to get it together enough to go to school to become a social worker. She was really working hard and trying to make her way into the world before she was sucked in, somehow, by Jim Jones. Sharon worked for the People's Temple using her social work and psychiatry skills, which means she helped brainwash people, unfortunately, as well as running their radio communications after moving to Guyana. After the move to Guyana, we'll talk a little bit more about Sharon at the end of the episode. She worked in the radio communication center in Georgetown rather than living on the compound at Jonestown. This will be significant later. We know 
that Sharon was in the upper leadership of the People's Temple by 1973 because that is the year that eight young members, known as the Gang of Eight, defected from the People's Temple. These eight young members had noticed that white members, like Sharon Amos, were more likely to ascend to Joan's inner circle and be given leadership within the group. The Gang of Eight Mm. pointed out other ways that the group's actions did not match its official teachings. Now, I use the word defected about these eight young people who left. The reason I use the word defected is that by 1973, Jones was openly threatening people who left. He was still using the rhetoric of, well, I'm God, and if you leave, I will smite you with disease or a car accident or lightning or whatever. But he was also threatening to have them hunted down by less supernatural means. So when they defected, they suspected that Jones would send a search party to bring them back, which he did. So when they left, they took a bunch of guns and headed for Canada. They figured out as they were driving up to Canada that they couldn't actually cross the Canadian border with three trucks full of guns. So they ended up in Montana (laughs) instead. Um, Jones, in response to these eight defectors, he brought together 30 members of his inner circle and he proposed that they should all kill themselves in order to preserve their movement. Uh, like, mm-hmm. true socialism isn't working because the world is so sinful and the world isn't ready for it. So we should all die to prove a point somehow. Mm-hmm. And Sharon Amos was one of these 30 people. So that's how we know that she was in the inner circle by 1973. So, like, wh- wh- what was the general reaction to this proposition? Were people like, calm your tits, like, literally just eight people left, we're fine? I was not able to find any direct testimony about that meeting. What we know is that the 30 people involved were able to talk him out of it for the time being, even as he waved a gun at them during that meeting. It's, when I say he's, he's deteriorating. Exactly how much cocaine is this man consuming on a daily basis? Benzos, actually, apparently, were what he was on. Oh, it's benzos. Oh, okay. Man. Okay, so he's just like (laughs) uh, like Xanax all day. Quaaludes. My personal theory is that Jones may have suffered from bipolar disorder. All of the testimonies I found that spoke to his mental health were that he would be erratic stay awake for days at a time and just have wild trains of thought and come up with new plans. And then he would be quiet and reserved and even completely isolated for several weeks. And then that would just cycle. So to me, that either sounds like using a lot of amphetamines or other upper drugs for a few days and then crashing out and being on benzos for weeks or possibly rapid cycling bipolar or both that's just my my opinion but that's the way that he was described by members so this was all happening behind the scenes while publicly jones and his organization were becoming more popular and powerful Like I mentioned earlier, the People's Temple could produce two to 3,000 people at the drop of the hat 
for any kind of political action that Jones wanted to support. If a politician who lined up more or less with Jones' socialist views wanted protesters for or or they wanted supporters to show up for an event or they wanted a letter writing campaign done, Jones could do it all. No problem. Sure, I'll have how many hundred people do you want there tomorrow? I gotcha. What? Yeah. Wait, I- I'm thinking that you remember all those George Soros paid protesters conspiracy theories that were going down? Oh, my God. Yes. What do you mean were? But yes. Yeah. the, the <laughs> Jim Jones literally did that. He was literally just like, hey, um, in exchange for political protection, you can have my AstroTurf army. Yeah. Man. Except for he wasn't paying his protesters. But but yeah. So, um, <clears throat> for example... In 1975, George Moscone was running for mayor of San Francisco. Uh, Jones had his people go out and participate in voter mobilization efforts. And because of that, George Moscone was elected mayor. And Jones, as a thank you, was made the chairman of the San Francisco Housing Authority in 1975. What? Mm -hmm. That is... God, man. Political corruption, man. That's... Uh Huh? So through his position mm. as the chairman of the San Francisco Housing Authority, he made a lot of other powerful friends in California. He had a strong political connection with Harvey Milk, uh, which was only partially due to Jones preaching about accepting gay people and the fact that the People's Temple marched in some of the very first pride parades. Their, their political similarities went beyond that. And uh, yeah, Harvey Milk actually later wrote letters to President Carter at the time of the Jonestown massacre to support Jim Jones because he had been a political ally to him as well as an LGBT ally um, like three years yeah. earlier. That's not a great look uh, for, for Harvey Milk. It's not. But before you judge Harvey Milk, please note that Jones was also in very good standing with none other than Rosalind Carter, who was the wife of the presidential candidate at the time, Jimmy Carter. Also, if you're a gay politician, even if you were in California, even if you were in San Francisco, political allies would be very hard Mm -hmm. to come by. Yeah. Um, Just the criminalization of homosexuality in general as it existed in the time. Uh, in order for you to survive and just get the things that you need to survive, they make it so that it is illegal for you to do that through legitimate means, and then they criminalize the means that you just get your basic needs met in, tor- in order to criminalize you as a person. So you're going to have to deal with unsavory people or corrupt people no matter what. Right. Um, so is it um, pretty cringe that Harvey Milk was such a loud defender of Jim Jones. Yeah, it's pretty cringe, but do we blame him? Absolutely not. No. And also Jones was to some level able to keep his, the, the abuses that at his church quiet. And his brand was that they're like, I don't want to say pro- like progressive Christians because there he was like saying he's God and that God doesn't exist also at the same time. Yeah. Not an abusive and controlling cult group. They're like that wasn't their brand. Their brand was we're Christians, but we're like progressive yeah. and we're for the people. Yeah. The brand it was like, oh, we're the most socialist, progressive, hippie Christians that there have ever been. 
on the surface, he was very good at keeping up appearances and staying in line with that branding until you were pretty deep in the group. And it wasn't like you could go and see a Jim Jones sermon and then record that and put it on Twitter and people would be like, yo, what the f*** is this guy saying? Because that didn't exist back then. Right. And you couldn't Google him and find this newspaper article that came out two years before. Yeah. They had like a transcript of his of his speech. You would have to like that go to a pulled. library. Right. The, and, and like the, the newspaper series that got pulled halfway through publication. And like, there, of course, if you write an eight part newspaper series, your heaviest hitting evidence is in like part seven and eight. So that stuff never got published. I also, his success in keeping the abuses quiet was due to his connectedness and his ability to mobilize his people. He's the chairman of the San Francisco Housing Authority. He has done a lot of work on equal housing and anti-eviction in San Francisco. He has also done direct anti-racist actions. He's connected to the mayor. He's connected to the police department. He's connected to city officials. He's friends with the wife of a presidential candidate. How could he be a bad guy? He's got political legitimacy. Also, when negative stories would come out, he would have his members write the letters to the newspaper and pick at the offices, and the stories would get pulled. So he had almost coincidentally worked himself into this station in life where he had this protection from negative press, and he could do whatever he wanted privately within his own group. And if anybody starts saying things about it, he can just say it's a hit piece. Right. And he's got thousands of people who will defend him. Who will say, no, that's not what happened. I was there. I saw Mm -hmm. it. This person's a liar. We know this person's a liar. Look, they said that they killed Robert Kennedy. Right. And then he's also got psychiatrists on staff who, number one, will dose dissenters with psychiatric medication to chill them out. But number two can testify and say, oh yeah, so-and-so, it's really unfortunate. They've got this disorder and they just, they can't help but tell horrible lies about Jim Jones. It's it's because he's such a good man and, and that's why people tell, you know, he's yeah. got, he's got layers and layers of protection that allow him to do whatever he wants. However, by the mid-1970s, Jim Jones' drug usage had escalated and he was becoming much more paranoid. To be clear, he had first claimed deity, stomped on Bibles, claimed to have ESP and be a faith healer. Both of those latter claims were debunked widely in the press. And he had generally pissed off a lot of parts of society that were not about his socialist and anti-racist takes. Then he had done a metric ton of incredibly abusive and illegal So he had a reason to be paranoid even without the drugs. Were the authorities actually coming after him for all of this stuff that that he was paranoid about? Or was it just purely paranoid because he was taking too many drugs? Uh, That's a a tough question. So there were investigations into the People's Temple, but mainly by the media, not the police. There was later a congressional investigation, but that hadn't happened yet. I, I'm sure that the the CIA had a file on him, but this is the 70s. They had a file on a lot of people. So what would happen more typically is a reporter would do an investigative piece on the People's Temple, 
they would report their findings to the police and then the police would decline to investigate or they would investigate and say that they didn't find anything. Yes, there was some reason to be paranoid, but also, yes, it was mostly the drugs, if that answers your question. I can only assume that he had good relationships with the local police department to the point where they're not going to have anything to do with investigating him. Anyway. Right. Or he may have even had members in the local police department, depending on which chapter of the People's Temple we're talking about. Just like with Jack Scopp mm-hmm. um, and, sure. and him being goody-goody with the fire marshal. <laughs> right. Like Jack Scopp and the fire marshal. Jones would, uh, however, threaten his people a lot. This became a another factor that he would talk about when he would preach. Uh, he started priming his people for the idea uh, in the early 70s that, well, one day they're going to come after us. The church was selling, as part of their fundraising, blessed and anointed photos of Jim Jones, little scraps of robes that he wore to preach in, uh, even locks of his hair at times. And those were being sold Uh. across the country. So he was paranoid that the government was going to get him for mail fraud, even though that's legal. That's not what mail fraud is. Right. (laughs) So he, he always had an enemy. And this comes from... Part of my information on this comes from Deborah Layton's affidavit. So a, a former member, several former members wrote accounts of how things happened. Deborah Layton was very high up in the hierarchy. We'll talk about her more later. She wrote about how there was always an enemy and who it was would change from day to day. One sermon, the enemy is the CIA. And the next sermon, it's the government as a whole. And then the next sermon, it's uh, the capitalists. And there was always a villain. There was always somebody who he believed was coming after him and his group. And he started to prime the people with this idea that there are people after us. We are living in constant danger. We are living on borrowed time. And eventually we are not going to be able to stay in the United States. Is this like at all giving you flashbacks to parts of it (laughs) like with the enemy thing because the enemy everything that you've told me about oh the government's eventually going to come after us Mm -hmm. or or this or that or man yeah uh or you know dhs is going to come after us who or whoever or the cps is going to come after us or they're going to make it illegal to be a christian or the (laughs) the rapture is going to happen are going to make it illegal to be christian and what i think is similar is this is us versus them thinking, which is a form of information control from the bite model. It is, there is someone after us, we have enemies, and it sets up this paradigm where everything in a person's life is us versus them. So that's, according to the bite model, what he is doing. And that, of course, is something that I'm extremely familiar with from my own experience. So because of Jim Jones' belief that eventually his group would not be safe in the United States. The People's Temple had rented land in Guyana starting in 1974. This was controversial because Jones had demanded that people send him more and more money. I think I referenced earlier, like Warren Jeffs, you know, he traveled around and he demanded more and more money to fund his travels until he found the right land that he wanted to rent. 
He chose Guyana because the recent revolution there had set up a socialist government and also because the country had a lot of black citizens. And Jones said that he wanted to go somewhere where his black members would feel safe and at home. Members were open to the idea of moving to Guyana and living on a commune. After all, it was the 70s. But what members in the United States didn't know is that once they arrived in Guyana, Jones would not let them leave. The commune... So the commune outside Georgetown in Guyana was established with about 50 people, while the vast majority of People's Temple members stayed behind in San Francisco, L.A., and other established locations in California. Guyana was pitched to the members as, this is our backup plan for when the government comes after us eventually. Yet another media expose written by Marshall Kilduff in New West magazine in March of 1977 convinced Jones that it was time to close up shop in the United States and move as many followers as he possibly could to Guyana. Again, with the Warren Jeffs move, moving everybody down to the, I can't remember what Warren Jeffs called it, New Jerusalem or whatever the hell he called his Texas compound. One of the people that Jones moved down to Guyana in the first wave of people that he sent was John Stone. And that's where he f***ed up. So John Stone was the child of the lawyer who he made sign the affidavit to say it was really uh, 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 Jim Jones's kid. Correct. So Grace Stone, John Stone's mother, had left the People's Temple in 1976. She defected. And she left her son behind with both men who claimed to be his father, attorney Timothy Stone and, quote-unquote, prophet Jim Jones. And that was exactly what he was trying to prevent when he When he made Timothy sign his rights away, like, four or five, six years earlier. Right. Jones had this affidavit that said that he was John's father. So John sent... Timothy and or so so Jim Jones sent Timothy and John Stone to Guyana and Timothy took his son to Guyana willingly to begin with and then shortly after this uh Timothy also left the people's temple and wanted to get his kid back out of Guyana so Timothy Stone joined a group called the Concerned Relatives was this like a support and advocacy group for people who had lost friends and relatives to the People's Temple? Exactly. So uh, Timothy Stone and Concerned Relatives Group started legal proceedings to try to bring John Stone back to his parents. And this incident snowballed into being the downfall of Jim Jones. Timothy Stone's legal proceedings against Jones and the People's Temple were blocked by the Guyanese government refusing to do anything about court orders, and eventually kicking Timothy out of the country. So the concerned relatives brought lawsuits, and they wrote to U.S. Congress members for help, which is how they got the attention of Representative Leo Ryan, who will become very important in a moment. So from here, it's just kind of snowballed through the year 1978. This started really taking off in early 1978. There were lawsuits, there were countersuits. Timothy Stone and other members of the Concerned Relatives group had dedicated their lives to helping get their relatives out of Jonestown. 
by October of 1978, Timothy Stone had written to the U.S. State Department to formally let them know that if they weren't going to help him, he was going to try to remove his son by force. He also wanted to let the State Department know that mass suicide was a major risk in Jonestown. Meanwhile, in Guyana, Jim Jones was conducting suicide drills. He called these drills White Nights. So at least two times before the actual massacre, Jones gathered all of the residents of Jonestown in their meeting hall. When these events happened, he would tell his members that someone was imminently going to attack the compound. Once he told them that it was it was mercenaries paid off by the CIA, and he would it, it kind of changed who was attacking depending on his who his paranoia was focusing on at the moment. And he would tell everyone during these white nights to vote between four choices. So choice number one, flee to the Soviet Union. Choice number two, die by, quote, revolutionary suicide. Choice three, stay and fight. Or choice four, flee into the jungle. And he had primed people by talking for years about revolutionary suicide and how that would be the answer eventually. So he could have fixed the votes behind the scenes to make sure that that was the option that people voted for. Or maybe he just had people brainwashed. He had people under mind control and they voted for what he would have wanted them to vote for. Either way, the vote would reveal that revolutionary suicide was the choice of the members. He would then have all the members line up and drink a small cup of liquid, which they had been told was poison. And when the time came that they should have been dead, he would reveal dramatically that this had been a test of loyalty, but that the day would soon come oh, when they would all have to die in this manner. Oh, mm-hmm. I mean, but that's such a huge, like if you go in for it and you go for it and you find out that you've like, what does finding out that it wasn't real do to a person gotta be such a mind for somebody that i mean that's got to yeah. push you further in of right. course on the surface level in your conscious mind the message that you are getting is you passed the test and you're also saying i am prepared to die for this right so now you have rehearsed your own death for the purpose of the cause Yeah. And you've mm. resigned yourself to the idea that you will one day die for the cause. And so like and so there there's the four options that he says which are stay and fight or or so revolutionary suicide stay and fight Soviet Union or jungle. Mhm. Suicide seems like the worst option. Doesn't it? Yeah, to non-brainwashed like, people. Yeah, but like I I mean why would you if you were going to die, why wouldn't you stay and fight if you were going to die anyway? Why would you just, like, give up? The thing is that Jones had been obsessed with the idea of revolutionary suicide for years. All the way back in 1973, you remember, he attempted to talk 30 of his closest associates into this plan. Because he really oh, right. thought it would own the capitalists somehow. <laughs> yeah, that but doesn't be- make a lot of sense. but it, it doesn't to people who are not brainwashed and not doing a lot of drugs. But because he had this obsession, he had primed the people to think that this was the correct choice. He also, by this point in mid, early to mid-1978, Jim Jones was not a well man. Now, we know he was not well mentally, but he was also somehow physically ill. Interestingly, 
There is some small evidence to think that one of the nurses who worked on the compound was poisoning him and that a revolt was brewing against him. So the people who dosed him with the benzos that he asked to be dosed with also were slipping other things into his food. Really? So this all comes from the Deborah Man. Layton affidavit. Uh, Deborah Layton, her, she and her family were fairly high up, fairly high ranking members. I have to say that a different way. There were technically no ranks within the People's Temple, but unofficially there was absolutely a, har- a, a hierarchy. Right, because it's communism and we're a classless society, but right. that's never right. how it actually <laughs> is. Right. Oh. Uh-huh. So Deborah Layton was, she and her family, we'll hear about her brother later. She and her family were in good with Jim Jones. She eventually escaped, narrowly escaped. And her testimony is one of the few testimonies that we have of people who were present during the White Nights that were able to tell us about them. She it looks like she left on May 13th, 1978. I just pulled up her affidavit to scroll through she managed to escape a few months before the massacre at jonestown and she tells us that people were forced to do manual labor for long days they subsisted on a diet of beans and rice Uh, she says that the food was rice for breakfast rice water soup for lunch and rice and beans for dinner with vegetables two or three times per week and one egg and one cookie for each member each Sunday. She also says that Jim Jones and his family ate separately from the other members, and that his children, including John Stone, who he claimed was his child, were given extra rations just like he was. There was the only refrigerator on the compound, if I'm not misreading something, was in his private living quarters, And he was also brought milkshakes daily. And uh, according to Deborah Layton and another memo, uh, someone may have been poisoning his milkshakes. What we do know is that he was not physically well. Uh, He was extremely bloated with edema. His ups and downs, mood swings had become more dramatic. He would be awake for days at a time or sleep for days at a time. And we also know that his mental state was deteriorating. So the members were on this starvation diet. They were working manual labor 11 or 12 hours a day, and they were stressed due to Jones preaching and marathon five and six hour meetings most nights. Members were completely depleted, and what Leighton said that stuck with me is that she was indifferent to whether she lived or died. So these are the conditions that made voting for suicide not seem like such a bad idea. So they're doing manual labor. Are they like are 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 they like farming? Are they growing food? Is... Yes. The the intention is that they will be growing food. Right, because it's a commune, and they're like we're we'll. To be self-sufficient, right. Yeah. But the compound at Jonestown only had infrastructure for 50 members, and 850 more people were suddenly moved there within a few months, uh, late 77 and early 78. So by the fall of 1978, they had more workers in the field, but there had not been time to bring in a full harvest. 
So seems like they were not yet self-sufficient. And they were also still building the compound. They were still building the infrastructure to support all of these hundreds of additional people. This just seems extremely poorly thought out, but this is from Jim Jones. He's just like, his mind is so addled. Yeah. He's physically ill. He's mentally ill. He's paranoid and he's on a lot of drugs. And so there was like low key, possibly a plot to overthrow him. But there were also all these loyalty tests that he's making people right. go through because he's getting more and more and more paranoid. Mm-hmm. So I think there was definitely at least one plot to overthrow him. My my opinion from having read about this is that there were likely, I don't know, let's say three or four small conspiracies to overthrow him. Some of them just being one or two people. Maybe some of them could have been a bit larger. And I'm... I'm basing this on survivor testimony of the final white night when 900 people did die. Um, Some things that went down that night that I will tell you about lead me to think that there were more dissenters in the group that we don't know about. Before we get to that, though, I do want to point out that this obsession with loyalty, like you said, is so, so, so Hiles. Beyond the obvious direct (laughs) comparison that Jack Hiles literally made a person do this exact thing, drink what he thought was poison that was not really poison, on record in front of thousands of people, beyond that direct comparison, the obsession with loyalty is exactly the same. I have to wonder if Jack Hiles, because Jack Hiles did that about 10, 12 years after. Yeah, about 12 years. About 12 years after Jim Jones did this, I wonder if Jack Hiles decided to do that because he heard that Jim Jones did it. Well, as I've argued before on this show, I think it's impossible that Hiles wouldn't have known the direct correlation between what he did and what Jones did. Well, this was such a huge story. Everyone heard about it. Everyone knew about it. Yeah, I was was sent so a, a wonderful listener sent me a copy of the Newsweek magazine that came out just a few weeks after Jonestown. It was everywhere. It was the thing to talk about. Everyone knew about it. So I think the absolute nicest we could possibly be to Hiles here is to say that the Poison Sermon was completely reckless and irresponsible. Of course, the more harsh thing that we could say is that he made the connection to Jonestown by himself on purpose, and he wanted his people to correlate him with a leader with the power that he perceived Jim Jones to have, and that he wanted his people to be loyal even unto death the way that Jones people were. Well, at this point, like, drank the Kool-Aid was a colloquialism that people used. People people use that now, and people were using it by the the mid-late 80s. And that that sermon was in 91? I I cannot remember if it was 90 or 91. It was sometime around that time. And so drank the Kool-Aid would have been like a a colloquialism that you would have heard people use in in real life. Right. So the absolute, like I said, the absolute least amount of responsibility we can possibly lay on Hiles is that he should have known better than to allow people to make the connection between him and Jim Jones, and he was reckless and irresponsible. That's the absolute nicest way that we can analyze the Poison Sermon in this context. 
which I think would be really bending over backwards to give Jack Hiles the benefit of the doubt, which I don't think is particularly fair considering right. everything else that we know about that man. Well, I do I do tend to do that. And I think I I feel lingering obligation to him as someone who I was brought up to revere. But I also know that a lot of our listeners feel that same lingering ob- obligation or reverence for him. And I think it is useful to look at this as what is the most graciously we can think of Jack Hiles in this particular situation, and then compare that to what I actually think. Let's uh, let's get back to Jonestown because we are at the point where it comes to an end. In November of 1978, United States Representative Leo Ryan from California and many others made a visit to Jonestown. Congressman Ryan, uh, he was uh, he was a good guy with some unorthodox methods. He would hear about an injustice in the world and just jet off to try to fix it himself. And he maybe he did some good for the world. He, um, per- in particular, he had a hand in having Congress pass a law where baby seals are not killed for, um, I think, their skins or their tusks. Good. But- yeah. Like he had he had some environmental and ethical investigations that he did. He was kind of a um loose cannon is how I would describe him. He would hear about an injustice and just take off to go try to fix it. Uh without he he often seemed to not think of the nuance of a situation or the effects that him going off as like a lone wolf lone wolf superhero type guy to try to fix it would have. But he, but his heart was in the right place. That's the kind of guy that he was. He had been investigating Jonestown and the People's Temple. He had spoken with Deborah Layton. Uh, he had spoken with members of the Concerned Relatives Group, and he wanted to go see Jonestown in person. He was hoping that his status as a sitting congressman would give him the ability to get into the compound and see what was going on. Timothy and Grace Stone were on this trip. But Jones did not allow them into the compound with Representative Ryan and his party. While he was visiting, the Jonestown put on a really good show of, oh, we're all so happy. See, we're just living on this compound. And he was not the only person to visit the compound. There were multiple of these visits where Jonestown would give the people better food and lighter work for the day and you know, smile and look pretty for the press. So, uh, and Representative Ryan traveled with uh, several members of press who were taking footage and conducting interviews. While he was visiting, multiple Jonestown members told him that they wanted to leave, but they were not being allowed to leave. And that was what he needed to hear to try to help. Some were too afraid to speak with him and passed him notes to say, please get me out of here. I'm not allowed to leave. So, wow. Yeah. And that they were so afraid of what would happen to them if they defected or if they were even seen speaking with this congressman says a lot to me. So at the conclusion of his trip on November 18th, most of Representative Ryan's group, including the press corps who had traveled with him and a small group of Jonestown defectors, went to an airstrip to leave Guyana. Representative Ryan stayed behind in Jonestown to try to find anyone else who wanted to leave, 
because at this point he knew something bad was going on here. Larry Layton, the brother of Deborah Layton, insisted on joining the group of defectors at the last minute, even though several other people in that group of defectors said, no, don't trust him. They, the press and Representative Ryan's staff allowed him to join the group. Shortly after that group left the compound, Representative Ryan was attacked with a knife by a temple member, and although he was not hurt in that attack, he decided it was time for him to go, and he decided to try and catch up with the group going to the airstrip and get out, get back to the United States, and regroup and try to get people who wanted to leave out of Jonestown another day. So there were two planes on the airstrip. One is a Cessna with six seats. The other is a Twin Otter with 19 seats. Larry Layton was part of the group that boarded the six-seat Cessna, and shortly after boarding, he produced a gun and opened fire on fellow passengers. He caused injuries before being overcome by fellow passengers. Just as Representative Ryan boarded the larger Twin Otter plane with everyone else on board, the group at the airstrip was intercepted by members of the temple's Red Brigade, which was the security guards for the People's Temple. The Red Brigade shot into the plane, disabling the plane and killing Representative Ryan by shooting him over 20 times. Ooh. Yeah. Four other people were killed in this attack and nine were badly injured. The survivors, uh, some of them were able to take off in the Cessna plane. The rest dispersed into the surrounding fields and jungle where they were later rescued by soldiers from Guyana and eventually were able to make their way back to the United States. They shot and killed a sitting United States member of Congress. Yes, and several defectors who were trying to get away. And Jones, uh, I'll tell you how he responded to it. This was the catalyst for his ongoing suicide-slash-massacre plans. Back at the compound on the evening of November 18th, 1978, Jones had begun the final white night. He had a large metal tub of grape flavor aid prepared. It was poisoned with many drugs, including cyanide. He told his people that the time had come for the revolutionary suicide. It seems that the members knew that this was different and this one was not a loyalty test because some members, including Christine Miller, said that death was not the answer and they should seek another solution. They should flee to the Soviet Union reorganized the group there. Christine Miller got very adamant with Jones. And this is something that can be heard on the Jonestown death tape, which I do not recommend that anyone listen to ever. So I want to call back to Jones' claim that he had claimed for decades at this point that he had ESP, that he was some kind of a psychic. Jones said to the people assembled during this white night meeting that he knew through his psychic abilities that the congressman had been killed. Jones told his people, I, you know, I didn't want this to happen. I didn't want him to be killed. I didn't do this, but I know that he has been killed. Of course, this is fucking bullshit Jones set up for the congressman to be killed, obviously. Of course. But this is how he fooled his people. This is how he led people to death. He told them, oh, well, I know that this has happened and I didn't set it up. I would never do such a thing. But my psychic ability tells me that this has happened. 
And because this has happened, there is going to be a raid on our compound. Members recalled at this time his former statements that if their children were taken by the amorphous them, whoever they are, that the children would be indoctrinated into capitalism and fascism and that death was preferable. I've literally heard people say it's better to die than to live in a capitalist hellscape. I've literally Mm -hmm. heard people say that. Yeah. That's so Mm. Jones is going off about his ESP. And that's when the red brigade comes back and they say, Oh yeah, we killed the congressman. And that so Jones has quote unquote predicted that this has happened. And then the red brigade comes back and proves him right. Of course, he planned the whole thing because he's mm, mm. okay. So that seems to have turned the tide when the people heard confirmation that the congressman had been killed. That seems to have really turned the tide for people to be willing to drink the poison, those who were willing. Meanwhile, I introduced you to Leslie Wagner Wilson right after the break. In the afternoon of November 18th, she had walked away into the jungle with nine other members and her three-year-old son, Jakari. Leslie's husband, Joe, was part of the Red Brigade, the Jonestown guards who, on that same day, were shooting Representative Ryan and his party. Leslie had been looking for a way out of Jonestown for a long time. She had attempted to visit the U.S. Embassy in Georgetown, but her plan was foiled. She had been trying to get out for months and trying to come up with a plan to get out for months. She had no idea what would happen that very night. She had no idea that she escaped with hours left over. She had her son tied to her back in a makeshift sling. She and the nine other adults traveling with her said that they were going for a picnic. They thought about walking to the airstrip, which was only five miles away, but chose instead, for some reason, to walk almost 28 miles through the jungle the other direction, and that choice saved their lives. If they'd have gone to the airstrip, they'd have been killed. Yeah. Mm. They were some of the few survivors of Jonestown, and they got out with hours to spare at the White Knight meeting. Jones had members line up like they had at least two times before to drink from the vat of poisoned Flavorade. He had parents dose their children first, knowing that once the children died, the parents would have less to live for and be much more willing to go along with his plan. The compound of poison that he had prepared would take about 20 to 30 minutes to work on a full-grown adult. The very young children and infants who were dosed died with about, within about five minutes or less. So people did stand up to him. Multiple people uh, stood up to him and said that they did not uh, want to die. But when word came back that the congressman was dead, like I said, uh, people seemed to give in to this being the right answer. Those who did not willingly take the poison which was a significant number. We do not know how many people. We know that it's significant. Were forced by guards to take the poison, were injected against their will, or were simply shot. Jones 
spoke over the screams of adults and children who lay dying in soothing tones, telling his people that this is a revolutionary act and that they are simply stepping over into a wonderful, better world. That is such a rough read, man. That is. Mm -hmm. I... Mm. I want to take a moment to recognize the absolute tragedy of loss of life. There's always, I think, a a small temptation as content creators to capitalize on this kind of violence and the shock factor of all of this. Yeah, it's not hard to see. Because, like, this could be a best picture film or, like, it could be a made-for-TV movie, depending on how it's portrayed. Yeah, and there have been yeah, and there have been movies made, but nine. But we, you know, it's so easy to to focus on the shock factor of this, but it really hit me in a different way when researching that nine hundred people died in Jonestown on the night of November eighteenth, nineteen seventy eight. Three hundred of them were under the age of eighteen. John Stone, the boy whose custody battle played such a large role in this, was killed, along with the rest of Joan's children who were present at the compound. You can even hear John Stone's name mentioned on the death tape. Someone asks if Jim Jones is going to spare him, and Joan says, no, he's my son, my children die with everyone else. Can you imagine the heartbreak of his parents, Grace and Timothy Stone, who worked so hard for so long to try to bring him home. And that's like a third of the people who died in 9-11. 9-11 was what, <clears> 3,000 <000 throat> people? 900 people. Actually, this that's- Jonestown was the largest civilian loss of life in American history until 9-11. So I highly recommend, if nothing else, uh, there is a link in the sources of the names of everyone who died, I suggest that you just go scroll through that list. And all of them are clickable links where you can see a photo of that person and a little bit about their life before Jonestown. But go scroll through 900 names. Go feel how long it takes to scroll through 900 names and see the magnitude of what this was. Because yes, this is dramatic and yes, it is interesting but it is so much more than that. And I, I challenge our listeners to, out of respect, go scroll through that list of names. How long until there's like, because I, I know it, this, is, this has been done with other cult groups, like it's been done with the Branch Davidians, like, but like how long until there's a Netflix drama about Jim Jones? And, some, and they get someone like, I don't know, they'll get someone like Adam Driver to play him. Mm-hmm. And people will be like, oh, my God, Jim Jones was so sexy. And he was for the revolution, too. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I hope that never happens. I could. Can't you see it happening, though? I can like, see it happening because it happened with David Koresh. Yeah, it happened with people were saying uh, that Ted Bundy, he was so sexy. Like, remember yeah. that? Re- yeah. remember, like, why? Ugh. And I. I am a true crime person, like so many of you who listen to this podcast. I enjoy this content, but I think there there has got to be a moment of reckoning for 
the victims of this situation. And a a moment of reckoning for all of us who I hope is all of our listeners who strive to be anti-racist in our lives. And for those of us who do have more of a leftist or socialist viewpoint to understand that holding those ideologies does not make you a moral or good person or a person who is above going the wrong direction. There's also plenty of people who will use those um, political ideologies as a way to kind of create a cult of personality around themselves. And that's the question with Jim Jones. Is that what happened? Or was he sincere in those ideologies and horribly wrong about other things and a horribly abusive person? So this is the grifter a true believer question. Which always, yeah, which I think is valuable. Where do you come on this? Uh, Both. Because as far as his anti-racist and socialist philosophies, I think he was uh, sincere. I also think that he was a, a mentally ill person and also a bad and abusive person. See, I'm not totally there on him being 100% sincere on this stuff. And I'll tell you why. Do you remember earlier... When they had, was it the Gang of Eight? Yes. Or the the, the Gang of Eight were saying, hey, how come it's all white people in your leadership group? See, that's that's an issue for me. Because if you're really going to- But that could have been unconscious bias. All sorts of people who are vocally anti-racist still have unconscious bias and commit microaggressions. I mean, hell, I know I've done it. Sure. And that's something that you have to- consistently work on and overcome over decades of being anti-racist for some people like you still find i still find elements of unconscious bias and i will realize it and then i will work on fixing it yeah but there's unconscious bias and then there's like a pattern of behavior unconscious bias is is to me is something that like if if you have a leadership circle and your your whole thing is we are anti-racist, we are supporting of uh, racial equality, of of gender equality, and then your leadership group is all white, is people, all white in like, a integrated and majority non-white group. I know I get what you're saying. Even, even if you're. It, like even if you're if it's unconscious at some point you're going to look around the room and you're going to ask that question if you're mm-hmm. sincerely interested in this and you're going to ask that question see the thing is though i think jim jones was sincerely anti-racist in 1950 and in 1960 by 1970 when we get into the part of the story that includes the gang of eight And these allegations that his actions did not live up to his words, by that point, he was gone. He was off the rails. He was heavily using drugs. So I think he was sincere in 1950 and 1960. And by 1970, his sincerity is not so much of a question because I think so little remained of the person that he was in 1950. And I'm not trying to sound like an apologist. Uh, What I am trying to express is his mental illness and his abusive patterns and his drug use eclipsed the person that he once was, which could have been kind of okay, but he gave up the opportunity to be kind of okay. Am I coming across the way I'm meaning to? Yeah, I get what you're saying. I just disagree with you. 
Um, oh no, I, we disagree. We can't be friends anymore. Yeah, we can't. Be, no, no. My, I, I, I think that he liked to to be anti-racist, but not in like a actually anti-racist way, and kind of like the uh, in a very like paternalistic and white savior way. See, I would agree with that character characterization of him towards the end of his life. I don't know if it was always that way for him. That's that is the kernel of of our disagreement. That is the root of our disagreement. Yeah, I know. I think I think what it comes down to is that if somebody if, if for you if somebody says that they're like a socialist or a communist, then you're like more likely to trust them than I am. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Then, then my thought is like, oh, we might, we will probably disagree on how to do the thing, but we probably agree on the thing that should be done. In the grand scheme of like things that make you more likely to trust a person and things that make you less likely, of which there are many, for me, that falls in the positive column. And for you, that falls in the negative column. And it's taken with everything else about a person to decide whether you trust them or like them or not. Yeah, and I just I just don't trust populists in general, and that's uh, and and most leftists are populists, and that's kind of where it 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 comes for me. But that that's like a personal thing, and and that's kind of where I see our disagreement on this. Um, but well, and our our disagreement only means so much. Where you know we're talking about a man who is dead. I it, guess it, I should finish. Forty years, and, and like I want to quit talking about Jim Jones and talk about the people who actually matter here. Um, but to sew up his story, he actually died by a gunshot wound it is very unclear whether it was self-inflicted or whether it was inflicted by someone else it was probably inflicted by somebody else because i do not i think that he was too much of a coward to do what he expected others to do yeah that tracks we're in agreement there jim jones was a coward there we go so let's talk about the people that i actually want to be talking about right now (laughs) Leslie, uh, uh, I should probably warn you, this is going to be up and down till the end here. (laughs) Leslie Wagner Wilson and her son Jakari survived due to her bravery and resilience to get them out at any cost. But Leslie lost 11 family members that day, including her mother Inez, her husband Joseph, her sister Michelle Wagner Fitch, brother-in-law Donald Fitch, niece Danielle, nephew Darren, and her 16-year-old brother, Mark Wagner, as well as Michelle's in-laws, the Fitch family. Leslie also lost everyone she knew, everyone who had raised her from the time her family joined the group in when she was 13 in 1969. Odell Rhodes, the homeless veteran that we talked about earlier, escaped by volunteering to get a stethoscope for the nurses and then hid under a building until he had a chance to run off into the jungle. Odell Rhodes is one of the only people who was present at the time the poison began to be administered that lived to tell about it. About 80 to 85 people survived in total. Did anybody survive being poisoned? No, no one who uh, took or was forced to take or was injected with poison survived. A few people, including Odell Rhodes, slipped away before their turn to take the poison came up. Because the line was so long, if you were at the end of the line, you'd be watching, the people at the front would have taken it, they'd be dead by the time you got to drink yours. Right. And you'd be watching them screaming and, like, dying and... Yeah. And, um... 
We are not going to capitalize on graphic details for content, but it is not a pretty death. It is not a pleasant death. Um, uh. There were armed guards. So the the Red Brigade, the, ar- the armed guards of the People's Temple and Jones would have been the last people in line to take the poison so that the guards could enforce it on everyone else. Many people were found shot, and it is assumed no one who was still there at the time the shootings began survived, so we don't know. But it is assumed that those people uh, refused to take the poison and then were shot by the Red Brigade, who were the last people to take the poison or be forced to, and then may have been responsible for shooting Jones or administering that somehow. Right, because what if you're in the red brigade and Jim Jones says, actually, I'm not going to take the poison. That's for all of you. And we don't know how he died because no one who was with him when he died survived. So all we have is forensic evidence. Um, So three men, Tim Carter, Mike Carter, and Mike Prokes, were tasked with taking a suitcase containing hundreds of thousands of dollars, cashier's checks, and gold, all of the temple's liquid assets, to town. And they were intended to survive. Jim Jones said, you are going to survive because I need you to donate all of our assets to the Communist Party. They left and then realized, oh, if he's sending us with all his assets, he's killing everybody back in Jonestown. So they left the bag with all of this money and gold and circled back to Jonestown to try to save their family members, only to find that they had already been poisoned. And were dead or dying when they returned. Uh, I'll have an article with more details on that uh, if you want them. Two older residents who were present in Jonestown at the time of the poisonings missed the announcement that brought everyone to the meeting hall and were able to hide from guards as the guards checked each barracks until the event was over and everyone else was dead. So two, uh, two residents who were present survived. I also introduced you to Sharon Amos, formerly known as Linda Harris, and her daughter Leanne, and I do want to finish up their story. It is not a happy ending. On November 18th, 1978, Sharon and her children, uh, so she had Leanne when she joined the group, and then she birthed two more children with Temple member Daniil Amos. Where They were all residing at the Temple's headquarters in Georgetown, where she was in charge of running radio operations for Jones. She heard on the radio what was happening in Jonestown, and Jones ordered her to also kill her children and take her own life. Although she was a part of the group of 30 people that averted this kind of tragedy in 1973, in 1978, Sharon Amos complied with Jones' orders. She murdered her two younger children, and then she and Leanne mutually took each other's lives. This is just a lot. I mean. And uh, one of my sources is a letter from a former boyfriend of of, uh, Sharon Amos, formerly known as Linda Harris. That was her name when he knew her. And it's, it's very tender. And I do recommend reading that. He tells a lot about the, what kind of person she was before Jonestown. Man. And it's very, it's really poignant and beautiful. Jim Jones, Colts, cult leaders. Leslie Wagner Wilson and other survivors 
were eventually able to return to America through grants from the State Department. But that return was not easy. Survivors often lived together, partially because of financial need, but also because of a need to feel connected, since so many survivors lost their entire families. Many survivors say that they felt othered and shamed by the outside world. They described social workers turning them away for benefits to help them rebuild their lives. Uh, One survivor said that, who actually was not named in the article that quoted him, he had a pseudonym because of the stigma. But he said that social workers would find out that a person was a Jonestown survivor and just kick them out of the office, refuse to help. Wow. Really? Mm -hmm. Surviving children say that they were bullied and outcast in school. A psychiatrist was brought in from the East Coast to help Jonestown survivors, many of whom settled in California, but survivors struggled to accept any help because Jones had preached against psychiatry, which many IFB survivors can probably relate to. Leslie struggled to rebuild her life. She experienced bad relationships, homelessness, prison, and substance addiction before finally finding healing. Leslie feels that when she stopped running from the stigma of Jonestown and instead embraced being a survivor's advocate, she was able to find that healing. And now she works in the field of telling the story of those lost at Jonestown. She is a speaker and a writer, and she helps other people recognize the signs of cults. She is a prolific blogger, and has done television interviews, radio interviews, and even wrote a book about her experiences. I'm really glad that she's done that. I think that... One like, of the few uh, true heroes that we get out of this. Thank goodness we have someone. Yeah. I wonder if she'd come on the show. Oh, man. I would love the, that. Fanta- that. She would be fantastic to to get on. I would love to talk to her. That would be unbelievable. She seems like... Obviously, I don't know this woman. I've read some of her writing and listened to an interview, but she seems like such a beautiful person, like just such a lovely person. I mean, I like I just, you know, since I've been like re-editing all the old episodes, I think back to or like I'm very immediately confronted with my attitudes that I held towards cult survivors when we first started these started these things out. We first started the show. and. Like how literally every assumption that I ever had was wrong. But I do think that the way that I was thinking about those things are very much the mainstream way that most people uh, out there in society think about these things because they have no reference point for it. Yeah, this event, along with the Branch Davidians in Waco, defined how popular culture defined cults and saw cults for 40 years, even up until... Now it's been what 45 years, 44 years. Yeah, I mean, I like when you first told me that you were raised in a cult, my first question was, Did you live on a compound? Because I was thinking about Waco and I was thinking about Jonestown. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing is that that's valid, it's not somehow morally wrong that you had a misconception. Being wrong is not a moral flaw. But that's why the way that we talk about this and the way that we talk about the IFB and other cults is so important. First, it's of primary importance to give honor to the innocent lives that were lost and the lives that were changed forever by Jonestown. It's important to give the proper weight to this horrific human tragedy. 
But we can also point out the similarities between Jonestown and other cults, like the IFB. It should be completely obvious that the trauma Jonestown survivors endured and the trauma I endured are different and are on a different level and are a different type of life experience. When we draw these comparisons, what I want is not, oh my god, what you went through is as bad as Jonestown, because I don't like playing that comparison game of this is as bad as or this is worse than anyway. I don't do that in my life. But when we draw these comparisons of this is how the control methods are similar, this is how the manipulation is similar, this is how brainwashing works, I think it does honor those who died at Jonestown and those who survived Jonestown by using their story as a teaching moment, as a way to understand cult-like tendencies and cult control, and hopefully keep ourselves and our world a little bit safer from these kinds of influences. Man, I I think that was extremely well put. I'm ready to stop thinking about Jonestown. Thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode. And next week, we have a really exciting episode. Next week um, is one that I really wanted to do. It's about visual depictions of Jesus. It's going to be about what did Jesus look like? How has he been portrayed visually? And how do people, just like various, how Jesus is depicted visually and artistically and in media and um, how he's described and, and theologically how that works. And I'm really excited to do this episode. This is going to be a lot of fun. Um, much more fun, I think, than today's episode. Yeah, and we have some great things planned for you coming through January. I think this year is going to be this year is going to be really exciting in the topics that we get to talk about. We have so many like really in-depth things going on and and some things that we've been doing a lot of work and a lot of research into. But if you like our show, if you're a fan of our show, you can hit that subscribe or that follow button on wherever you get your podcast and it'll get you that new episode right when it comes out on Monday morning um on Thursday. This week on Thursday, there's going to be a re-release of an old episode. I don't know which one it is going to be, but it's going to be one of the episodes that's uh, 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 whichever one's next on our list of episodes that we have to release. Uh, that's going to come out on Thursday. So take a look for that. It's it's going to be remixed, remastered. Um, if you want to join our Patreon uh, and support us, it's patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast. Uh, you can follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at leaving Eden podcast on Twitter at leaving Eden pod uh, Sadie social media. Yes. First, don't forget to check out the Vashti initiatives forum on spiritual abuse that will be taking place on Sunday, January 15th. The link for the tickets and more information about this forum will be all over our social media and you can get 50% off your tickets by using code EDEN. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, I'm at Sadie Carpenter Music. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Hell yeah Sadie. And on TikTok, I'm Sadie Carpenter One. If you want to follow me, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at G A V R I E L H A C O H E N. If you want to hear me talk about Formula One racing, you can follow my other podcast, which is called House of Speed. House of Speed podcast. Um, You'll be able to find that wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Until next week, it's great to be here with you guys. And happy 2023. We hope it's a good year. Bye-bye.
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.